Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to the Dead Zone. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hello. Ooh, we got a big one. It, this week's is a doozy. It is a, a doozy, uh, to say the least. <laughs> uh, we should probably just get to it, because I'm telling you, the wiki on this one, there's a lot of information to cover, but I, I'm excited about it. Yeah, you've been uh, pretty stoked about it all day long, and you kind of kept teasing stuff, and you were like, eh, mm, I got to save it for the podcast. <laughs> Can't tell you about it yet. And I was like, okay. So I, I am a Hitchcock fan, and I have to keep you in suspense. Well, that's how I've been all day, so I'm very ready. All right, well, let's do it. Well, just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater, and we're told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we want to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find it, because, oh yeah, the theater moves around a lot, it's never in the same place twice, and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And we are in the second week of a new series of movies we call Grinders, where we look at some of the best exploitation and grindhouse films from the 1970s. And today's film, it's a heavy hitter, but it is an exploitation classic. And that is the original 1972 Last House on the Left. Woo! We, we're, we're doing it. <laughs> it's it's happening, folks. And of course, before it gets happening, it, this is the time where I have to warn you that we are about to spoil a lot of things. So if you want to watch this movie, by all means, now is the time to pause. Go check out the movie. We found it on Amazon Prime. It's also on Pluto, I believe, right now. Um, so go check it out if you would like to. I feel like this is one of those that should very much come with a trigger warning. There's some heavy content in it, so be sure to check out what the movie is about, maybe before you go watch the movie, just to protect yourselves, depending on what your triggers are. But it is a very interesting movie, and I think it is worth a watch if it's something you can stomach. So again, if you haven't checked it out and you want to, go watch it, come back and join us. And if you don't want to watch it, hang out anyway, because we're going to sit here, talk about it, and spoil it. So here we are. Yeah, and Danny's right. This this one's a, a pretty rough one. It, it goes beyond just violence and gore. Uh, we're going to be talking about sexual assault. That can be difficult for some people to listen to. So if this one's not your jam, maybe you skip it and we'll see you next week. Definitely. Well, with that being said, let's jump into the wiki. The Last House on the Left is a 1972 American exploitation horror film written, edited, and directed by Wes Craven and produced by Sean S. Cunningham, who would go on to launch the Friday the 13th franchise. The film stars Sandra Peabody, credited as Sandra Cassell, Lucy Grantham, David Hess, Fred Lincoln, Jeremy Rain, and Mark Scheffler. 
The story is inspired by the Swedish film The Virgin Spring from 1960, directed by Ingmar Bergman. This was Craven's directorial debut and was filmed on a modest budget of $87,000 in and around New York City and rural Connecticut in 1971. Its success would launch Craven's career but pigeonhole him in the horror genre for years, which enabled him to become one of the most well-known names in the field, spawning other classics such as A Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, The Hills Have Eyes, Swamp Thing, and The People Under the Stairs, just to name a few. Written by Craven, The Last House's original script was intended to be a graphic hardcore film with real, unsimulated sex and even more graphic violence, with all actors and crew being committed to filming it as such. In fact, both Fred Lincoln, who played Fred or Weasel, and Lucy Grantham, who played Phyllis, both had done adult films in the past. However, after shooting began, the decision was made to edit the script into a softer version, more accessible to a wider audience. Filmed at a time when American families were being bombarded nightly with images on the news of our losing efforts in the Vietnam War, Craven envisioned a film in which the violence would be shown in detail on screen. He felt that many popular films of the era, such as westerns, glamorized violence and the vigilante hero and gave the public a misleading representation of death as something distant and far removed from the perpetrator by way of a simple shot of a gun. He wanted audience to see and understand the depravity that comes from the true, close-up, intimate violence that human beings could be capable of inflicting upon each other. That original script, written under the title Night of Vengeance, has never been released. Only a brief glimpse is visible in the featurette Celluloid Crime of the Century, a 2003 documentary on the making of the film. Promotional material capitalized on the film's graphic content, featuring the tagline, To avoid fainting, keep repeating, It's only a movie. It's only a movie. Producer Sean Cunningham claims that their marketing specialist was watching a cut of the film with his wife, who continually covered her eyes, prompting him to tell her that it was only a movie. Despite the warnings, the film's graphic content sparked protests from the public throughout the fall of 1972, who called for its removal from local theaters. The Paris Cinema, a movie theater in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, issued an open letter to these criticisms in September 1972, in which it was noted, quote, After carefully considering all the circumstances, management has decided to continue to show the movie. This difficult decision was predicated on the following considerations. The film relates to a problem that practically every teenage girl and parent can identify with, yet does not pander to the subject matter. The story does not glorify violence, nor does it glorify the degenerates who perpetrated the violence. We feel the movie is morally redeeming and does deliver an important social message." End quote. Even some newspaper advertisements featured lengthy statements issued by the film's producers defending it against claims that it was sensationalized violence, one of which noted, quote, You will hate the people who perpetrate these outrages, and you should. But if a movie, and it is only a movie, can arouse you to such extreme emotion, then the film director has succeeded. 
The movie makes a plea for an end to all the senseless violence and inhuman cruelty that has become so much a part of the times in which we live, end quote. Promotional artwork for the film accompanying such producer statements included a warning that the film was, quote, not recommended for persons under 30, end quote. Craven sought a documentary-style appearance for the film, marked by close-up shots and single-cut takes. Cunningham later described the film's shoot as being guerrilla-style, with the crew spontaneously filming at locations and sometimes being forced to leave due to lack of permits. Craven recalled the on-set relationship between David Hess, who plays Krug, and Sandra Peabody, who played Mary, to be turbulent. Sandra was often treated differently than the rest of the cast to the point that Craven recalled there not being much acting during the shooting of the film's more violent scenes. Even Mark Scheffler, who plays Junior, admitted that during a one-on-one sequence with Sandra, he threatened to push her over a cliff if she failed to hit her marks. Sandra had stated that she was generally upset during the filming of the movie's violent scenes, but more because she felt unprepared as an actress, saying, quote, I was upset because I'm an emotional person, and I reacted to what was going on as if it were real. I had a really hard time with some of the scenes, end quote. Even assistant director Yvonne Hanneman described it as an upsetting shoot, with Sandra having to be consoled by Craven throughout filming. Sandra has also stated that although she was uncertain how a lot of the scenes would turn out, she trusted Craven and Cunningham and their vision for the film. The Last House on the Left was released theatrically in the United States on August 30, 1972, and despite the controversy, was a major box office success, grossing over $3 million domestically. In the UK, it was refused a certificate for cinema release by the British Board of Film Censors in 1974 due to scenes of sadism and violence. But during the early 1980s home video boom, the film was released uncut as a video that did not fall under the BBFC's remit at the time. But by 1984, the movie landed on the Department of Public Prosecutions list of video nasties and was once again banned. It wouldn't be until March 17, 2008, that the BBFC finally classified the uncut film for video release. Contrary to popular belief, the film was never banned in Australia on its initial release. Rather, it was never picked up for distribution in the country due to the censorship issues that it would have created at the time. The film was eventually classified R by the Office of Film and Literature Classification for its DVD premiere on November 15, 2004. It was also granted a theatrical screening that same month at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in Melbourne. In 1980, Vestron Pictures hired Danny Steinman to write and direct a sequel, though the film fell apart in pre-production due to rights issues. Mario Brava's 1971 film Twitch of the Death Nerve, also known in the States as A Bay of Blood, would be released under several alternate titles, including Last House on the Left Part 2, Last House Part 2, and New House on the Left, even though it was in no way associated with Craven's original. In August 2006, Rogue Pictures finalized a deal to remake Last House on the Left with original writer and director Wes Craven as producer. Craven formed Midnight Pictures, a subsidiary of Rogue, to remake The Last House on the Left as its first project. 
The film was released in March of 2009 and was directed by Dennis Iliadis and had a huge cast starring Garrett Dillahunt, Aaron Paul, Ricky Lindholm, Spencer Treat Clark, Sarah Paxton, Tony Goldwyn, and Monica Potter. All right, well, real quick, let's get into the synopsis of the movie. So it says, teenagers Mary and Phyllis head to the city for a concert, then afterward go looking for drugs. Instead, they find a gang of escaped convicts who subject them to a night of torture and rape. The gang then kills the girls in the woods, not realizing they're near Mary's house. When they pose as salesmen and they are taken in by Mary's mother and father, it doesn't take the parents long to figure out their identities and plot revenge. All right, so here we go. Uh, This is... It's going to be a rough one to get through a couple of scenes, but ultimately this is a tale of revenge. Mm -hmm. So there's something to look forward to, I guess? Question mark? (laughs) I mean, yeah. I I think it's satisfying. Oh, yeah. I I love stories of revenge. And this is a big one. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to it because this movie, I had seen the remake. Mm -hmm. You had seen the remake. Uh, so uh, we knew what to expect in the general story, but yeah. you always wonder how does it differ from the original? And quite frankly, it's story-wise pretty dead on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there wasn't too many variations. Uh, the one biggest difference, and you're going to hear me talk about it a lot as we go through this breakdown, I did not realize how much comedy was in the original. Yeah. Because there is none in the remake. No, no, no. It is balls to the wall, terrifying, scary, not good. Yes. I mean, it's it's a well-done film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this one, it has these funny moments, and it really messed with my head. Yeah. Because I knew what was coming, mm-hmm. <laughs> and what else is in here, it made me very uncomfortable. I didn't know what to do with myself (laughs) is it like one of those feelings where you're like I don't think I should be having a good time right now yes yeah exactly you feel guilty for laughing yeah but you can't help yourself there are literally genuine funny moments in this film and it's weird but we're gonna talk about it so (laughs) let's let's just get to it so we're starting out immediately just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we, we get this disclaimer. The events you're about to witness are true. Names and locations have been changed to protect those individuals still living. Now, I have tried. I can't find anything that points to any specific case that this would have been based on. Yeah. It's never mentioned in any interviews with Craven or any of the actors or the producer. Nobody talks about it. I can't find anything online. And seeing as how this was a pretty straight reimagining of that Ingmar Bergman's film, The Virgin Spring, I mean, it follows that story to a T. I think what they're saying here is this here, this is a real thing that happens and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. So be prepared. Yeah. Because what we're going to show you, it's going to seem like it's real. Mm -hmm. And, And that was his whole goal. He wanted this to feel very real, which is why it looks like a documentary. Mm -hmm. So we see it's a lovely autumn morning. The leaves are changing. The ducks are on the river, water, lake, whatever it is. (laughs) And the postman pulls up to the mailbox of the home of Dr. J.H. Collingwood. And this is it. 
this is apparently the last house on the left. And we see written in red on the mailbox the name Mary, with an I, uh, with a heart and a bleeding arrow through it drawn to its side. little foreshadowing there. Is that normal for like people to sign their mailboxes? No, not at all. Okay. I, I don't know why it's there. Okay. I thought that was weird. I was just like, I, but I thought maybe it was like her way of saying like, hey, I live here too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 it's not outside the realm of possibility that some teenager would just doodle on their mailbox. Sure. It wouldn't have been allowed in my house. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> you go wash that off right now, young lady. <laughs> I'm a grown adult. I'm going to go doodle on my mailbox right now. I, I really wish you wouldn't. Okay, I won't do it. Thank you. Well, the family dog Cassie greets the old postman who notes how many letters Mary is receiving today. You'd think was she was the only girl to turn 17. So we know it's Mary's birthday and she's getting a lot of birthday cards. Uh, and then he says, of course, she's about the prettiest piece I've ever seen. Creepy. Gross. <laughs> You are 75 years old, and you're gross. (laughs) Immediately, I'm put on edge, and nothing's happened yet. It it literally comes down to one word in what he said, and that's peace. Mm -hmm. If he had simply said, of course, she's about the prettiest young lady I've ever seen, perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But because you called her a peace, you're disgusting. Yeah. I don't like you. Yeah, it makes me uncomfy. You know what you can do with your mail, sir? Put it in your peace. Thank you. (laughs) Well, Mary is taking a shower, and at exactly two minutes in, we get our first boobies. (laughs) The first boobs. So if you were unclear whether or not this is an exploitation film, uh, that should be a decent indicator. We're just jumping right into it. Yeah. Well, next we see Dr. and Mrs. Collingwood, and he is an international bookie, and she is pregnant with quintuplets. Or at least that's what Mrs. C jokingly tells her husband she told the repair people about the telephone lines that keep going down and why it's important that they have a working phone. So this is just to set up, there's a problem with the phones, and, and that's going to come into play later. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary has now come downstairs, and Dr. C wants her to be careful going to the concert tonight because he hears it's in a bad neighborhood. She promises she will, and then we have a discussion about the fact that Mary isn't wearing a bra. It's, it's a silly conversation, but I, I think it holds two purposes here. One, it shows a, a typical conversation between a teenager and her parents, letting the audience know this is just your typical, happy, suburban family. Is that typical? Well, I, I mean, they're just saying it's the same kind of thing as when you come downstairs and they're like you're not going out of the house dressed like that when they think you just look too provocative for your age which brings up the second point I think that's why this is in here I think this is Craven's way of bringing up the fact that often women are blamed for their attacks because of the way they dress provocatively Mm -hmm. therefore it must be their fault because they're flaunting it Mm -hmm. but literally if they hadn't had this conversation, I wouldn't even notice she wasn't wearing a bra. No. She'd been wearing like a quarter-length shirt and pants. Uh, she's got like a sweater on. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, what? This but whole conversation was weird, though. It, it was weird. It, it, it was a little strange, but it, I think it's just to show you how there's just this cohesive little family. They're comfortable talking about this silly kind of stuff. 
And then again, we have to say because because she's not dressed like a floozy at all. No. I mean, she's <laughs> looks extremely conservative, even by 1972 standards. I mean, she's not doing anything. But I think that's the point is that she looks totally fine and normal. But oh, she's not wearing a bra. So she must have been asking for something. Yeah. Yeah. That whole exactly like I said, just blaming it entirely on their clothes or the lack thereof when that has literally nothing to do with the fact that that decision was wholly forced on her. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mary is going to see the band Bloodlust, which worries Dr. C because he was just reading about them in the paper and aren't they the ones that bite the heads off chickens? This is no doubt a reference to an incident that happened in 1969 at an Alice Cooper concert. Dr. C has gotten Mary a lovely gold peace symbol necklace, and as she puts the gift on, she explains that she'll be going out with Phyllis Stone. Mary's mother doesn't really approve. She's a bad influence. But Mary assures them that she'll be safe because she's from that bad neighborhood. So next we meet Phyllis. Plus, Phyllis wears a bra, so... I don't think she does. Well... The parents don't know that, but she should have lied about that. Obviously, they've got some sort of radar. They can tell under sweaters whether or not you're wearing a bra. Yeah. Even if you're an A cup. <laughs> this is all very true. Can you imagine? Mom, I'll be safe in that neighborhood. Phyllis wears a bra, so it'll be fine. <laughs> so no one's even going to look twice. Well, Phyllis claims that her mother and father are in the iron and steel business, uh, which she clarifies as her mother irons and her father steals. So... We're seeing that these two girls are from different classes of family. Uh, Obviously, Mary is in the upper middle class. Her father is a doctor. And then you have Phyllis, who is considered the bad influence just because she's, quote unquote, from the wrong side of the tracks. Well, the girls are off to drink some hooch at the quarry or river or lake, whatever this water thing is, uh, but they wish they had some decent grass and maybe they can score some before the concert. And then they wonder what it would be like to make it. That's that's the phrase they use, to make it with the members of Bloodlust. Mary thinks it would be just like doing it on a whole bunch of cotton, soft and gentle. And this is literally just to show us how naive Mary is about sex, indicating she's most likely a virgin. And let's talk about this music. So the score for this film is so unusual, but I think it's a big part of Craven's plan to disarm you against what's what's coming. So for instance... We haven't heard a single note that indicates that this is a horror film. Everything has been over-the-top folksy, like if James Taylor and Joan Baez ate Bob Dylan and shit out a less talented baby. (laughs) So (laughs) here's an example. So you've heard of Harry Chapin, right? Uh, His hit song from the 70s, Cats in the Cradle, has made dads feel like shit for almost 50 years. Well... This was done by his brother, Stephen Chapin, who had been a student of Craven's when he was a university professor. And Craven tapped in to write the film's music, along with David Hess, who plays Krug. So here's a sample of the lyrics. Wheels turning, some of the leaves are turning brown. Coming to gather you, gathering cherries off the ground. 
and after the rainbow, after the day glows come over you, bottle of wine and then a waterfall, gonna lead you to the dream you knew you do. <laughs> what? What does any of that mean? <laughs> what is happening? It's it's so weird. It's a bop. <laughs> this the thing about this movie is it is just a giant mind fuck. Yeah. I could not figure out what to do, how to feel, doing one thing one moment, other things are happening to no one. I'm so confused. The music is going to get crazy. This is nothing, okay? But but we'll get back to that later. So the girls are now in the car. They're traveling to Manhattan and they hear a news report of two escaped convicted murderers, dope pushers and rapists who have already killed two prison guards and a German shepherd that was kicked to death by a young animal-like woman. We hear the driver was Junior Stillo, the illegitimate son of the gang's leader, Krug Stiller, who had been in prison on a life sentence after killing a priest and two nuns. You know, it's a bad dude if they kill a priest and two nuns. I feel like Craven just said, who can we put in there that we immediately know they're a really bad dude? Who could they kill? And they're like, priest some nuns i mean you go just <laughs> just go in dude yeah i feel like that this whole scene was set up like that immediately when they heard that report and they were like drug pushers rapists like naming all the worst things which yeah i mean they're shitty people so all of that makes sense but yeah and then talking about kicked a dog nuns and then threw babies across cafeterias and then picked up cats and punted them across football fields it was just it went on it's like all the awful things these people could do they just kept naming them on the radio station i was like wow this is a lot actively like the ending of the sopranos <laughs> what these people are bad <laughs> they're the worst <laughs> Well, Krug gets worse because it's reported he's also hooked his son, Junior, on heroin just so he can control his life. The second convict is Fred Weasel Padowski, who had a long police record for child molesting, peeping Tomism, mm -hmm. which I didn't know was an action, a verb. Yeah, I didn't know it was an ism. I, be, I just thought you were a peeping Tom. I'd be peep, peep Tomin. Or a peeper, maybe. I'd be a peep tomer. Creepy peeper. <laughs> a looky doo. A get the fuck away from my window. <laughs> oh, and he also had assault with a deadly weapon. So there you go. Guns. <laughs> <laughs> so we see the group hold up in a rundown apartment in New York City, and they have a kitty that looks just like our Josie Bobo. It's true. And of course, the first thing I think is don't hurt that fucking cat or I will turn this movie off so fast. Swear to God, cannot do it. There are certain movies I refuse to watch simply because I already know an animal gets hurt. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's fake. Not going to do it. I think it's a cheap ploy. Thank you. Not going to watch it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> but the cat's fine. I'm assuming we never see it again. Uh, but next, Sadie, the name of our mystery animal-like woman, is in the bath and wants a beer. And this is actress Jeremy Rain. This part was originally written for a woman in her 40s who was supposed to play the mother figure to Junior. But Jeremy came in and convinced them she could do the part at like 21 years old. I mean, she was a kid and she still convinced them that she could make it work at her age. And she got the part. 
That's crazy. I didn't realize that she set that up herself to go, like you said, earn that part herself. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah, no kidding. But interesting side note about Miss Jeremy, uh, she would go on to marry actor Richard Dreyfus. Oh, really? That's right. My Matt Hoopa <laughs> from Jaws. Yeah. Yeah, they were married for like nine years, had like three kids. Oh, wow. I just thought that was cool. And she, um, she looks a little rough in this movie. You know, she's uh, been through some stuff, lived a life in her 21 years. Uh, she's fixed herself up nice. Her hair isn't giant and crazy anymore? No. no. Well quaffed. <laughs> well, Junior brings her a beer and sits down for a chat, and they're talking about who they want to be when they go on the run. And Junior wants to be a frog. And he's very committed to that part. I mean, he goes on this whole frog impression for a while. I was just like, wow, this he's... He's doing it. Yeah, it was a whole scene. I was like, this is all right. This is the frog scene. He he wants his own lily pad and uh, just to be a frog. I, I feel like there's so many other things we could have chosen, but, you know, heroin. But so, also, at the same time, I get it. Do you? Why, why be a human when you could be a frog? Well, it's not easy being green. But it's better than paying bills. <laughs> well, I mean, when was the last time you checked a frog's mail? Maybe they bills too that's very true well next mary and phyllis are picking out ice cream mary doesn't want mint chocolate chip she doesn't want lemon sherbet what else do you have they just showed they filmed the menu they showed us all freaking 31 flavors and she keeps saying what else do you have no i don't want that what else do you have quit freaking asking what else do you read (laughs) just read and pick something (laughs) but it's interesting how craven is doing this because we get these these fun moments with these girls, they're they're out having a good time. We had the touching moments with their family where they're just getting along with each other. But then in contrast, we have this other side. You know, we have our clean cut middle class family and our anti-family. It's like two sides of our coin are mm-hmm. good and evil. And it's constant back and forth. He plays that balance so well throughout that this movie and I really think that's the whole point of the comedy you know we've talked about it before about how horror and comedy have always kind of gone together it, it just makes sense for people to put those more light-hearted moments in there to give your audience a, a break from these horrors that they're experiencing but still with this movie for some reason it's just so unsettling <laughs> Mm-hmm. when it happens that it's hard to relax you can never really truly enjoy just these lighthearted moments because you know what's coming and I would imagine it was a whole different experience in 1972 watching this for the first time and having no idea yeah that's very true what you're about to go through well back to our evil family Krug and Fred are trying to share Sadie Krug says she's his. Fred says he thought she was their woman. And Sadie says she's her own goddamn woman. And now Krug wants to know if she's been, quote, reading them creep women lib magazines while he was in the joint. And she says, maybe. (laughs) To which Krug replies, why don't you just lay back and enjoy being inferior? Nice. Yep. Missed that line on my first watch through. (laughs) And therein lies the problem. When men view women, not as human beings, 
but as inferior and mere property to be owned. Why, that's a good way for someone to get their dick bit off. This is all very true. Let's see what happens, shall we? (laughs) Well, Sadie agrees, kinda, and she calls him a male chauvinist dog, which Fred, of course, corrects as pig. Regardless, she ain't putting out no more till they get a couple more chicks around here. So I think we can all see what's coming at this point. Next up, the girls are walking the streets after finishing their ice cream. Still have no idea which flavor Mary landed on. That's the biggest mystery of this whole movie. (laughs) It really is. I'm sure at some point the employees were just like, look, lady, I'm not reading the whole fucking menu to you. Either pick something or hit the bricks because we got other people who need tutti frutti and you got to go. The sequel's called The Last Flavor on the Menu. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I'll watch it. I would, too, honestly. It's just Mary sitting in front of there asking, no, no. What else do you have? What else do you have? Next. (laughs) I'll try that. No. Next. What else? Well, now Mary is complaining about how dirty the neighborhood is, and Phyllis just says, it's not that bad. It's just a little funky. (laughs) So next they spot Junior standing out on the stoop in front of their apartment, and they think they can score some Mary Jane from him. A little Maui Wowie. A little devil's lettuce. A little chronic. A little... I didn't. Couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> a little herb. A little ganja. A little reefer. <laughs> yeah, I was a, a pothead in my day. Yeah. Did you ever actually call it anything special like that? S- special. <laughs> Did it have a special name? I called it Steve. <laughs> Can I get some more Steve? <laughs> Quit broken the Steve. I'm just smoking a Steve. <laughs> puff, puff, Steve, pass. <laughs> Steve's in the room like, I don't like this. I know a couple of Steves. This is weird. So, well, he claims he's got an ounce of that good Colombian shit and brings them inside and introduces them to the rest of the Firefly clan. I mean, Krug's gang. Of course, if you are at all familiar with the movie House of a Thousand Corpses, I'm sure you're aware of the influence this film had Mm -hmm. on Rob Zombie. Yeah, that's very clear. But as soon as they're inside, Junior locks the door and traps them, getting paid in heroin for the delivery. Phyllis immediately recognizes they're in trouble, but I don't think Mary really knows how bad this is yet. And I imagine if you were in the audience in 1972 and didn't know what was coming, you didn't know how bad this was yet either. So next we're back with Dr. and Mrs. C and they have decorated the living room for Mary's birthday and it looks good enough to be in a magazine. Or so thanks Dr. C. I don't know what kind of birthday magazines he subscribes to. It seems like a very small niche of people that would be interested in such a publication. But what do I know? I'm not a doctor. (laughs) It was just such a weird thing to say. You put up some decorations. This looks like it should be in a magazine. Do people put a lot of birthday decorations in magazines? There's just this weird market for doctors that love birthday decorations. <laughs> <laughs> well, back at Krug's place, Phyllis demands they be let go or she's going to start screaming. This prompts Fred to pull out a switchblade and Krug tells her, let me give you a little bit of free advice. If you make one peep, And then we cut to Dr. and Mrs. C baking cake together. We'll never know 
what the advice was. But Phyllis never screams. Not once in the entire movie. So she must have taken it. But Doctor and Mrs. C are just baking away, completely oblivious to the situation their daughter finds herself in. And they're making this cake and they're laughing and wiping icing on each other. It's all very Ozzy and Harriet and it's supposed to be. It's that sharp juxtaposition of these two quote unquote families that's important to set up front because those roles are really going to get flipped on their heads by the end of this film. Yeah, I even made note of that in my notes about the juxtaposition of these two scenes of the parents baking the cake and then obviously the gang and the girls, that whole scene being unsettling. I think you kind of touched on it before about how this whole movie just, I don't know if it was purposeful or what, but it did a good job at doing it. It just does a really good job of keeping you on the edge of your seat and not really ever fully able to be comfortable throughout the whole movie and I think Mm -hmm. this scene does that as well because you see these parents that are basically naive and ignorant to the fact that their daughter's being assaulted and stuff like that and and obviously that happens in real life I mean you have these cases where these families are at home and you know the daughter went to school or the daughter went to the mall with their friend you know it's just their home seeming that life is normal and they're expecting their their child to return and meanwhile something terrible exactly exactly so yeah i i made note of that about just how unsettling flashing back and forth between those two scenes was yeah this entire film the, the whole time in the back of my head i just came kept thinking this is every parent's worst nightmare mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is a horror movie made for parents mm-hmm. well back at krug's phyllis is trying to reason with the gang look why don't you just let us go? We'll forget the whole thing and won't tell anyone about any of this. But Krug just insists that they ain't stupid and unbuttons her shirt. Fred goes in for a sniff. I don't know what he's doing. Sucking air near her breasts. But he doesn't actually touch her yet. He just calls them chicken breasts. And Phyllis spits in Fred's face, but Fred didn't like that and pulls a switchblade back out and tells her if she does it again, she's dead. To which Krug says, easy weasel, we don't want to off somebody the first night out. There are other ways of doing things. And he punches Phyllis in the stomach. She drops to the ground and is gang raped by the group as the camera pushes in on Mary, who has the look of panic, fear, disbelief, horror, all of it on her face. You can see her eyes dart around the room trying to figure out if she could make a run for it. But Junior's right next to her, and she's literally frozen with fear. I mean, the look on this girl's face, because you know what's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully, in at least at this moment, we are spared what's happening to Phyllis, and that's what makes this so powerful, is we don't have to see it to know how horrible it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. You see the look on Mary's face, and that's all you need to know. Yeah, yeah, just the simple implication of what's happening is enough for all of us to be able to empathize with how she's feeling yeah and unfortunately it's going to get a lot worse so back in suburbia dr and mrs c are having a drink and make a toast to their princess and again there's that juxtaposition and it breaks your damn heart because you know like i said this is every parent's worst nightmare they have no idea what's happening Mm -hmm. 
Well, next up, it's early the next morning, and we see Fred outside opening the trunk to a car. We know it's early the next morning because the screen literally says early next morning, and you hear a fucking rooster crow in Manhattan. Now, (laughs) I've never been to Manhattan, but I was under the impression that even back in the 70s, that was a pretty urban area. I mean, it's quite possible there could be some rogue chicken farmers in a 700 square foot sublet in Manhattan. They got fire escapes. People need eggs. It's an urban chicken just out there with its fancy boots on. (laughs) Everyone knows urban chicken wear fancy boots. Getting out in the street, yelling everybody to wake up in the morning. (laughs) Get up, put your boots on. It's Manhattan. This is City Alive. Wake up, put your boots on, get out there, do your thing. I really hope there are people in New York listening to this right now. Honey, come here. These crazy Oklahoma women think people in Manhattan have chickens that wear boots. I don't know what goes on in the middle of this country. They look over to their chicken and tennis shoes and they're like, clearly they don't know. Nikes. The chicken just rolls its eyes. It's like, Okies. Of course they think we wear boots. (laughs) Oh, geez. And now we get the first of this goofy-ass fucking music that is just so out of place for this movie. I'm not talking about the folk stuff. This is taking it to a whole nother level. It's like this weird, deliverance, backwood, banjo, goofy shit that makes it seem like we're going to see a comedy scene featuring the Keystone Cops. It's like, it's like, what the fuck is this music? But yet we're watching these people who have just raped a woman and held another captive, put them in the trunk of her car. Is that appropriate? The music or the scene? Neither. <laughs> Neither. Yeah, it's, neither are great. It just messed with my head so much. Yeah. I think at one point, because I kept wanting to say things, and we try not to talk about the movie as we're watching it, yeah. so we can have this more spontaneous conversation when we get to the podcast. And I kept wanting to go, what? I think at one point I did say something about a certain instrument, but, but we'll get to that. You did occasionally keep saying, what? <laughs> what? Because I'd have to stop myself. It's like, who? 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 But I, I love a good reaction. That's my favorite. Because then I'm like, oh, she stumped. Yeah, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. Well, back at Dr. and Mrs. C's, they're starting to worry that Mary hasn't returned. But the phone has started working again. And Mrs. C has been making calls trying to track her down. Dr. C tries to reassure her, saying that staying out all night is basically kind of a teenager's rite of passage. And she'll probably be walking through that door any minute. Well, next we get some lovely nature shots and everything is calm and beautiful and the music is finally soothing. Yeah, it's like this flute music with yeah, like babbling like, brooks. And... Da, 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 da. Yeah, oh, it's just nature. Yeah. It's lovely. And we see the woods and the trees and the ducks on the water. I, I, am, I just was like waiting for Will Rogers to like come walking down the lane in his sweater and just let me know everything's going to be okay. Because that's what I needed. Do you mean Fred Rogers as in Mr. Rogers? What did I say? You said Will Rogers. I meant Mr. Uh, Rogers. Who's a cowboy. I meant Mr. Rogers. All right. 
Yes. Well, it had an Oklahoma tie, so I thought that was nice. Well, thank you. <laughs> I definitely met Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I was expecting Mr. Rogers to like walk out at any moment in his cardigan just to let me know that it was going to be okay. That's what I needed in the moment, at least. Yeah, again, it's another one of these weird moments where we just had this, you know, crazy chaos of the night before, and now they're putting her body in the trunk of a car, and then, you know, the parents are now starting to worry, so things are getting serious. But then we just cut to some lovely nature. Uh, But then we see this running water, and then we have a shot of faster running water, and even faster running water. And the music is picking up. And now rushing water. And the music's getting faster and more rushing water. And faster music. And quick cut to Krug's gang's car flying down the road. I I really like this transition. I hate this fucking music because we've gone back to the... <laughs> but I love what Craven did here. You know, he, he takes this very serene, these nature shots and everything's calm and soothing. It's literally the calm before the storm because mm-hmm. yes... We have somewhat been through something bad. We didn't have to witness it, but we know Mary did, and we know she's in danger. And we also know it's not over. It's not over because she's in the trunk. Mm-hmm. So seeing this calm of this nature and soothing and this just water, but then it's rushing, and then we get some rapids, and everything gets crazy, and the music starts picking up, and then all of a sudden, boom, here we are with evil. And it's like, okay, get ready, because here we go. Mm-hmm. So back in the car, Sadie is sitting on Krug's lap, and they're just flat out having sex. Just right there, top down on the car, Fred's sitting in the seat right next to him, and Krug is getting pissed because Fred won't shut the fuck up and he can't concentrate to finish his business. But let's talk some more about this fucking music. (laughs) It's that same kind of backwood banjo shit, but this time they've added a kazoo. Oh, yeah, you you definitely commented on the kazoo. A fucking kazoo! <laughs> what? And, oh, and then there's lyrics. Oh, God, the lyrics. Oh, please, let me share them with you. Oh, Weasel and Junior, Sadie and Krug, out for the day with the Collingwood brood, out for the day for some fresh air and sun, let's have some fun with those two lovely children and off them as soon as we're done. Weasel and Sadie, Junkie and Dad, a quartet in harmony, barbershop bad, cutting and styling to size and to shape. Krugsy, you know that this fooling around ain't gonna get us out of this state. What a happy jaunt. Yeah, it's it's really one of those, I want to slow dance to it, I want to twerk to it. I don't know how you can with... It's ridiculous. And I cannot figure out what's going on. I just, the entire time, I was so confused and felt like I kept being pulled back and forth. I was like, my mother, my sister, my mother, my sister, what is this movie? It's just a mindfuck. It really is. You know what it sounded like? You know exactly what this music sounds like? It sounds like something that Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem would sing in the Muppet movie. Oh, yeah. I seriously expected Sweetums to be loping behind the car yelling, Wait for me, fellas! I want to go to Hollywood! (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God, it's the most surreal experience I've ever had in a movie. No, not ever. At least in a long time. Yeah. And I guarantee you, it's 100% intentional on Craven's part. He wants to keep you off balance. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. 
That's what this whole thing, nothing about this is supposed to be comfortable because everything about it is wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, next we're back at Dr. and Mrs. C's. And speaking of Keystone Cops, as I mentioned earlier, this goofy son of a bitch, here's the sheriff eating the cake that was never eaten for Mary's birthday and assuring them that he gets calls like this all the time from concerned parents and he's sure Mary will be home by dinner. Meanwhile, Krug's car has broken down right in front of Mary's house. We see the mailbox with Mary's name and the heart written in red. It's her mailbox. And this is where I call bullshit. This is too coincidental. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, it was one of those things where I was like, obviously we take notes during the movie. Mm-hmm. And I had just made one and I was like, did, did I miss something? Did I, I literally thought that I had missed like the pivotal moment that explains how they got there or something that explains how this is actually real. How yeah. this could have actually occurred. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Because there should have been more of a reason why they just happened to end up here. It's the last house on the left. <laughs> but I mean, you could drive Krug's car through that fucking plot hole. I, I got a Dean Craven on this one. I- I'm sorry. He's a brilliant filmmaker. But you want me to believe that they broke down in the middle of nowhere, right in front of one of the girls' houses you just met by chance in a completely different city? Uh Uh-uh. I I can't do it. They just drive through the house and they're like, oh, weird. How did we end up here? (laughs) What a dink! Is this your girl? (laughs) Too bad you can't have her. I'm going to take her back. I just wanted to check. Did you drop this? (laughs) is it a finder's keeper situation i found this i just wanted to confirm it is yours i'm gonna put it back in the trunk now (laughs) goodbye i i think in the remake they actually had a reason for going back to that area i don't know if yeah, because the, I don't remember having that, like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, I don't remember going, how did they end up back here? Mm-hmm. That's a little too convenient. Yeah. I, I think there was more of a reason. Like, I don't know if the Mary character actually promised them she could get dope for, or maybe money from her parents' house or something. But there was more of a reason that it made sense for them to be all the way back in this area near her house. Yeah, But here... Not at all. It's just like, you accept it and let's go with it. So we do. But back at C's house, the sheriff's deputy, Harry, comes in. And hey, it's Cobra Kai, that asshole sensei from the original Karate Kid. This is actor Martin Cove. And he's the only person I recognize from this whole movie. Well, there you go. And he's come in to let the sheriff know that he's contacted New York police. And they say they don't have anyone matching Mary's description in jail or on ice. In fact, the guys in the morgue say they haven't had a kid on ice all day. And he's saying this in front of the parents. Yeah, and you can immediately tell they're, like, (laughs) Like, uncomfortable. Even the sheriff is like, uh, Harry, just... uh," But he doesn't get a clue. And then he wants to know if that's the last piece of cake. Yeah, he, like, says all that and he's like, uh, is that the last piece of cake? (laughs) And this is really when I realized, I was like, oh, this is actually supposed to be funny. You're expected to laugh at parts of these movies. Yeah. But man, it was so jarring every time. I was like, is is this okay? Am I a bad person because I'm laughing? Is this inappropriate? 
I just, <laughs> oh God, this movie messed with me. <laughs> I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> well, now back at the car, they open up the trunk to pull out some tools and Phyllis bites Krug. So they pull both girls out and Mary sees her mailbox and knows she's so close to safety. God, can you imagine? I, I literally can't even oh. fathom. Well, they end up taking the girls off into the woods. Meanwhile, the sheriff and Cobra Kai leave the C's house and see the broken down car at the end of the driveway, but they don't have time to stop and check it out because they got more important things to do and that ain't going to help them find Mary Collingwood. Yeah, why check out this weird piece of large metal that has shown up at the end of the driveway at this house that's the only house in this area? It's not suspicious at all. No, we have other things to do. We're cops. We have cake to eat. And checkers to play, well, apparently, later on. Uh, and now this this is when things start to get really bad. Uh, it's going to start with some humiliation. Stuff like they make Phyllis piss her pants and they each have to strip and they hit each other and slap each other. And then they're forced to have sex with each other, Phyllis and Mary. And the only reason why I bring this part up, you know, Danny and I had talked before, we're basically going to just kind of skip over these parts. If you're interested in seeing what's happened, by all means, please go and watch the film. There's no need for us to get into detail. But I wanted to bring this particular portion up because the performances here are absolutely heartbreaking. And the way it's shot, again, this documentary style feels very real. It's handheld and you just feel like you're eavesdropping and mm -hmm. you're watching something that you shouldn't be. And as I mentioned up top, it, it it sometimes felt very real for Sandra Peabody, the actress who played Mary. But there's a moment here with Lucy Grantham, the actress who played Phyllis. You know, Craven, when he would do these scenes... It wasn't scripted to the detail of what we see. Basically, he would give them carte blanche and just say, here's what we would like to accomplish, but feel free to improvise. Do what you feel is right for your character in this moment and just go with it and let's see what happens. So Lucy had experience working in adult films, so she's used to being exposed and naked in front of a group of people you know cast and crew and and cameras but of course Sandra was not and and all of this is very new and she's nervous about it and there's this moment where Lucy grabs Sandra's face and she tell you know she's trying to calm her down and she's like you know shh, shh, there's no one else here it's just us it's just there's just the two of us and that was completely improvised that was literally Lucy saying to Sandra Calm down. Just imagine that we're the only two people here. It's mm -hmm. just us. And that's really like this genuine tender moment between these two actresses. Mm -hmm. You know, one who is just so nervous and terrified and the other one saying, it's going to be fine. We're going to get through it. I'm here with you. Let's just do it and get it over with. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just it was just a really striking moment that when I found out that that was genuine and that was a real moment that they had and it wasn't scripted that way it, it just it that really really affected me mm -hmm. yeah because I, I guess you don't really think about that uh, you know in movies with when you have kissing scenes or sex scenes obviously you know that this 
actor is portraying a character and that's just part of their job. But you don't think about this case where A, you know, you have these very young actors where maybe they have never done a sex scene before and now their first sex scene or one of their very first sex scenes they're ever going to do is a very violent sex scene. And I, I can't even imagine the nerves behind that to mm-hmm. know that one of the first few sex scenes that, you know, you're going to be filming as an actor is this scene and it's in front of people it's in front of cameras it's completely an uncomfortable situation and as you know a a female you automatically automatically just feel the sense of like danger for Mm -hmm. yourself and you kind of put yourself in that role of like fuck this is real and so yeah I can't imagine uh, as a person in that role to have to sit there and kind of separate that in your mind Mm -hmm. to put yourself in that that mindset to be able to just get it over with like you said yeah and I I did watch that documentary that that they did and it's it's on YouTube we'll put a link in the show notes if anybody's interested in seeing it but they talked a lot about how Sandra was actually scared of both David Hess and Fred Lincoln uh, just because you know, they talked about how they would purposely, when they weren't filming, they didn't really hang out with each other. Is it's like, you know, your your bad family, the, our evil side, they all kind of grouped together and mm-hmm. stayed with each other. Even Jeremy, who is a female, she tended to stay with the group that she did the most acting with, and then Sandra and Lucy were really the two that hung out with each other. So already they've created just in this filming situation they're in this separation Mm -hmm. it's us against them kind of thing yeah and and there was talk about how David Hess is really kind of a method actor and was kind of always in character and just had kind of you know an aggressive personality Mm -hmm. and it just made her nervous and he would kind of do things to scare her because it amped up that fear and it made for a better performance but I, I think she did not per- participate in the the documentary that I watched. So uh, I just, you know, am, am getting what information I can from the other people who were there. But, you know, I, I think this, this was a very difficult shoot for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it shows sometimes. It seems very, very genuine sometimes that, that the terrible things that are happening are actually happening. Yeah, and that it's clear that she's not enjoying herself yes absolutely well we finally get a break from the woods and are in the sheriff's station and you know here's some of that comic relief that you think you need but you're not sure uh because the sheriff is fielding another call from dr c and dr c is yelling at him uh, because the sheriff is saying he still has no news and dr c is saying look you know I'm holding you personally responsible if, if you don't start coming up with some answers here. So when he hangs up, he tells Cobra Kai, you know, sometimes I wish I was something else. And Cobra says, you mean like a duck or something? That's always the alternative. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting the comedy. I just, because I laughed at that. <laughs> and then I felt so bad. <laughs> I just, I did not know what to do with myself. I feel like it's one of those things where you kind of laugh, but then you like pull your collar. You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, 
Well, back in the woods, Krug tells Fred he's going to go back up to the car and grab something to cut up some firewood. But we all know no one is camping out here tonight, so whatever he's getting, it has some other purpose. But this leaves Fred, Sadie, and Junior to watch the girls. So Phyllis gives Fred the ruse that she's really cold and wants to put her clothes back on just until Krug gets back. She then whispers to Mary that she's going to make a run for it, and when they chase after her, Mary should go get help. So Phyllis takes off, and Fred and Sadie go after her, but Junior is left behind to watch Mary. So Mary gets dressed and starts working Junior. She gives him a new name. She calls him Willow because he's so beautiful and he shakes when the wind blows. She then asks if he has a lot of girlfriends, and he's like, oh, yeah. I have so many girls trying to get with me. And Mary says, I don't think you do. And he says, well, you're right. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) I laughed again. (laughs) Shit, this movie. (laughs) Well, Mary gives Junior her necklace because she wants to be his friend. But he says, no, you just want to escape. And then she says the magic word. I can get you high. She explains how her father is a doctor and he takes care of addicts and he keeps methadone in his house because I guess all doctors just have it on hand. You never know when you need emergency methadone. Yeah. It's most likely a ruse just (laughs) just to help get her to the house, but it has certainly piqued his interest. Well, back at the sheriff's station, the news is reporting that the escaped convicts have been spotted heading their way and a description is given of the car. And, of course, they immediately recognize it as the one that was seen right outside the C's house. So they got to jump in the car and go. They've screwed up. (laughs) Uh, It's time to go. But as they're running out to the car, the sheriff asks, how long does it take to get out there? And old Cobra Kai is like, it's going to take at least 25 minutes. So it's not like they're just down the road. They've got a drive to go. So next we go into a big, long chase scene with Phyllis. I mean, it goes on and on. And at Mm -hmm. one point, she's caught by Sadie, but gets away. And she's caught by Fred, but gets away. And then keeps running and gets across the river. And it goes on for a really long time. I feel like they filmed a bunch of running footage and just said, you know what? We need to use all of it. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually, Phyllis makes her way to a cemetery and can see a road on the other side. But guess who's there to cut her off? It's Krug with that something he can use to cut up some firewood, a machete. And it comes into frame accompanied by a loud synth out of nowhere and scared the shit out of me. Yes. It was like, da machete! It's like, fuck! I think that's what you literally said. I think I did. I was like, fuck, what is this movie? <laughs> But it's Fred that ends up making the first move, and he stabs Phyllis in the spine. Meanwhile, the cops are racing to the C's house, and their car runs out of gas. Yeah, this is the start of what, for me, becomes this, like, weird... It gets goofy. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, this whole scene of them trying to, like, get from the station to their house. There's a lot of nonsense in between there. And it just feels so goofy. It's a totally different movie. It really is. I literally found myself asking myself that. I'm like, was this meant for something else? And they were like, (laughs) no, we really got to put this in there. 
Because it just felt so bizarre. Yeah, out of place. And disconnected. It's so weird. Well, Phyllis has tried to crawl off despite her spinal injury, but the group easily catches up to her and starts violently stabbing her. I mean, at first I thought that they were raping her again. Mm -hmm. That's how brutal this stabbing was. And it is a lot. And it just, it goes on for a while. Uh, And finally, she's disemboweled by Sadie. She starts pulling her intestines out. And then they're done. They just leave her body. They are right in the cemetery. Yeah. And this scene is especially like the sound effects is like everything's very wet. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this this whole scene to me was like very, I mean, obviously we've had a lot of things happen up until now that are very unsettling. Mm -hmm. But I, I think because I knew from knowing the general flow of like the remake and everything, I knew where we were, where we were getting to. Um, in this movie, it was like kind of the tipping point where I was like, oh, shit, like, and, and we're not playing games anymore. The cops are still fucking playing games on the street, but we're not. Things are getting serious over here. And yeah, that seems just rough. It It is a rough one, but we got one final one to get through. Mm-hmm. So Mary has convinced Junior to help her get to her parents' house. But they're headed off by Krug, Fred, and Sadie. Mary asks about Phyllis and if she was able to get away. Krug tells her no, and when she looks around and sees they're all covered in blood, and Sadie throws Phyllis's detached arm on the ground, she realizes Phyllis is dead, and she's next. Krug then carves his name into her chest, and then proceeds to rape her, and this time it is very up close and personal and it is not pleasant i i will say that danny and i watched an a cut version so we're not quite sure how different that would be from an uncut version uh but i i don't need to know yeah you get the point you really do so afterwards mary is allowed to dress and walk away where she throws up and then says the Lord's Prayer, and it is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And Krug and Fred and Sadie are just standing around, and they almost look like they feel bad about what they've done. But they don't feel bad. They're not capable of remorse. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all psychopaths. So it's not that they feel bad. She just bummed them out. It's not fun for them anymore. Yeah. You know, they see she's sad about it. Yeah, they were kind of like riding this high of like just killing Phyllis and coming off this high of like just completely annihilating Mary's world, basically. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you have Mary very visually and and physically reacting to this whole scenario. And yeah, you can see them kind of like in their faces and their body language. They immediately just kind of sag. Yeah, basically they're done. Mm -hmm. They had their fun. She's ruined it. It's not fun anymore, so they're done. Mm -hmm. So Mary is then allowed to walk into the water about waist deep, and they shoot her dead. But back at the C's house, we see the dog, Cassie, is chained up in the backyard, but she can hear each of the gunshots that end Mary's life, and that's how close she was to home. Mm -hmm. And you're just, you feel just as defeated. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh. 
Yeah, because you do, you kind of get this sense of like, oh, maybe, maybe one of those gunshots didn't hit her. Or mm-hmm. maybe they're survivable and, you know, she'll be able to make it home. But yeah, you have have that scene of like hearing those gunshots. And obviously it's just sad seeing this dog like yelp and cry and bark and react to these sounds. Mm-hmm. Knowing what we know, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, yeah, the whole scene is heartbreaking and it's just, it's, it's sad. <laughs> it's one of those that anytime these scenes happen in movies, I, for me, it's not a, a, a huge trigger enough for me to feel like I need to turn off the movie. I, I will, I will sit through the scene, uh, but it's definitely one of those that I'm not going to sit there and like rewatch it for funsies you know what I mean oh yeah so yeah this is it's one of those okay I knew this was coming because I've seen the remake I know that the scene had to happen but it doesn't make it suck any less (laughs) no well our idiot cops have set off on foot and at one point there's like a car that tries to pull over and they're waving them down and they stop but when the cops get close they drive off and they're like we hate fucking cops (laughs) (laughs) well now we get ada who's driving a truck full of chickens i bet it's some of those fancy manhattan chickens i didn't see any boots i did not see boots either yeah maybe in transport they you know just relax oh yeah i'm sure they probably take them off put them in the corner of their little box yeah well, they flag her down and and say, "Look, Ada, this is important. You got to this is official police business. You've got to take us up to the Collingwood house." And she's like, "All right, but you're going to have to ride on the top of the truck. There's there's no more room. She's literally the back's full of chickens, her passenger seat's full of chickens. They got to ride on, on top." And so they do. They climb on top. She tries to take off in the truck stalls. They both literally go flying off the top of the car. I'm like, are what? <laughs> what is this? Do I keep changing the channel <laughs> to another movie and switching back subconsciously? Do am I not aware that I'm doing this? <laughs> it's just so crazy. But Ada, a lover, she isn't even an actress. She was literally the cleaning lady. At the location that they were staying at as they filmed. And they just said, hey, you want to be in a movie? She was like, sure. And who knew that she would be the star? Oh, God. She's... I will take Ada over these idiot cops any day. <laughs> Give me more Ada. Well, Krug and the gang get cleaned up and change into nicer dress clothes. But back at the C's house, the doc is playing solitaire. Yes, kids, people used to have to play that with real cards. And Missy comes in and lets them know they have guests. Cut to the living room and Krug and the gang have made it to the house because their car is broken down and they need to get to a garage. But they're all closed for the night. So what does Miss C do? Invites them to stay the night. Seems reasonable. Strangers, come on in. Sleep in my house. Lay with me in my home when I'm at my most vulnerable. Yeah. Their daughter's been missing almost 48 hours now. People you never met before show up at your house. You're like, oh, all the garages are closed. Just come on inside. I'm even going to put you in my missing daughter's room. All of that checks out. (laughs) Okay. Well, we can see that Junior is starting to Jones for a fix. And Fred discovers photos in Mary's room. And they recognize her. So they know exactly where they are. Well, later, Miss C 
fixes dinner for all of them. But they start to notice that things might not be on the up and up with this group. Their clothes are a little disheveled, even though they're nicer. But they have bite marks and wounds and cuts on their head. And their story about being in sales doesn't really add up. And then you have Sadie, who's like just chugging wine. Oh, my gosh. I'm four, five glasses. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, wow, can we slow down a bit? You can see the mom like just staring at her and then staring back at the table and then staring back at her and staring back at the table. Like, is, is she really going to drink all the wine? <laughs> is she really doing this? I mean, I I wanted a glass. If you could just share some with the rest of the table, that would be, uh, that'd be great. I mean, it's fine. You, you are our guest. Please help yourself. That's fine. You took my daughter, so it seems that you should also take my wine. No, it does not. You may not have either. I want my wine, want my daughter. Fuck off, get out. Kicker. Well, meanwhile, Junior is getting sick from withdrawals, and Mrs. C can hear him in the bathroom. She goes to check on him and sees the peace necklace that Dr. C had given Mary around his neck. She gets him back to Mary's room and sneaks into the guest room. Why aren't some of them staying in there? Why is everyone crammed into Mary's small bed? There's a whole nother fucking guest room and no one's in there. Just their luggage. What if she, what if she's like, all right, you guys stay in here. And then actually we're going to come in here too. And we're, we're actually all going to sleep in here. All the rooms should be empty for the night, except for this one. We don't use the other beds. They're for show. We're a family now. They're actually just cardboard boxes with comforters on them. <laughs> Jim lost his job years ago. He's not really a doctor. No. He just reads birthday magazines all day. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> oh, so the mom is in the guest room going through their luggage and she finds all of their bloody clothes and she can hear their conversation because, you know, Junior's really freaking out. He wants his fix. He wants his fix. And Krug tells him to shut up or he'll end up in the lake with the girl. And mom overhears that and she knows. And immediately, Dr. and Mrs. C take off and find Mary on the shore of the lake. Her eyes are clearly open and she moves her head to look at both of them. And Mrs. C says, oh, John, isn't there anything we can do for her? And he says, no, she's dead. What? What the fuck kind of doctor are you? She was just awake and looking around. At least try a little CPR. No, there's no fighting chance whatsoever. We really must just push her back out into the water. We really... Could you actually hold her under? <laughs> if you could sit on her, that would be great. I mean, the Heimlich, a tourniquet, anything. He seems to give up really fast for a doctor. It's like, oh, just missed it. If I had only been here five minutes earlier. Half a second, and really, we would have been here in the <laughs> Completely nick of time. different outcome. I just feel awful. <laughs> Should not have stopped for that cup of coffee. Oh, well. Let's head on back inside and look at those birthday decorations, shall we? <laughs> have you seen the August edition? Hell of a centerfold. <laughs> Streamers. <laughs> in all the right places. <laughs> 
Well, next we see Fred in bed tossing and turning, and Mrs. C in full scrubs comes in and puts her hand on his mouth and tells him not to move and to open his mouth. The doc then comes in with a chisel and a hammer. Yeah. And puts the chisel right to the top of his teeth where they meet the gums and raises the hammer and it comes slamming down and I come fucking unglued. Yeah, you were like, no. I curled up. I'm a big girl, but I somehow curled myself into like a two inch by two inch ball and just was like, nope, nope, cannot do it cannot do it they did not show it but they didn't need to it's just the thought of it and that sound of that hammer coming down mm-hmm. oh still right now every muscle in my body is tensed up thinking about it i hate it yeah hate it yeah but turns out it was all just a dream so next we see dr c go to the basement to look for a weapon he first tries a pipe wrench and a trash can lid and he says that's no good Meanwhile, Fred is now up and startles Mrs. C, who's having a drink in the living room. He asks what she's doing up so late, and she claims she heard a dog outside. So back in the basement, we see the dog has pulled a shotgun off the wall. What? (laughs) There was a shotgun there the whole fucking time, and your first thought was a pipe wrench and a trash can lid? (laughs) These people seem vastly unprepared for what they're about to embark upon. (laughs) I mean, they obviously have some kind of plan. I think that scene's funny because the dream scene before it mm-hmm. uh, makes me, uh, before we realize it's a dream, I'm like, damn, they're coming in hot. Yeah, like, they ain't fucking around. Yeah, and then right after that, we show him, like, finagling through this area, picking up, like, cats and dogs and campers <laughs> and other inanimate objects to use as a weapon, and then he's like, oh, a gun, I guess this will work. <laughs> it's not my favorite, but. <laughs> I mean, we'll put it on the back burner. If I got to fall back to it. I'll put it in my back pocket see if it comes up use. But I don't know. I'll grab this hairbrush and see what this does. See what I'll feel later. Hand me that spork. <laughs> well, Fred wants to go sit on the couch, but Mary's dead body happens to be there. So that won't work. Also, I love how he didn't ask, hey, who's the dead chick? Yeah. It just seems like he knows that this is the daughter's house. So if you see someone laid out on the couch that wasn't there earlier. And also she hasn't changed clothes. She has not. It should be pretty obvious who that is. Yeah. But we're just, she's just like, oh no, we don't, we don't want to sit on the couch because obviously Mary's busy being dead. So we just, um. That couch is cardboard too. So let's go into the other room. Yeah. Let's go back to Mary's room and the call cuddle in the bed. Would you like to look at one of our magazines? <laughs> well, when none of those ruses work, she uses her the only weapon at her disposal, which is her sexuality. And she flirts with this asshole to get him to go outside. And it works. So next, Dr. C starts to set up some booby traps and home alone the shit out of this house. There's forks wrapped with wire and window latches removed and water spilled on the floor over live electrical wires and shaving cream on the floor and a human-sized cardboard cutout on a model train to look like someone walking in front of the windows. (laughs) Wait, no, that's the actual Home Alone. (laughs) But there's a lot of booby trapping going on. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, 
Mrs. C is still flirting with Fred, and he boasts that he can do her with his hands tied behind his back. So he insists that she tie him up so he can prove it. And that's exactly what she does, happy to oblige. So she proceeds to tie him up with his own tie, and uh, it's going to give him a little head. But before she does, she accidentally gets his little thing caught in his zipper. I love this moment. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was brilliant. It's just like this little moment, but... It's so satisfying. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> she gently unzips it, but she continues to call it little. And he says, it's not little, you just scared it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he just immediately gets offended. Well, next we see the doc sneak into Mary's room where Krug and Sadie are still sleeping. And he takes the gun Krug has on the nightstand. Well, Krug appears to wake up. And I thought... He was busted. I was like, his eyes are wide open. Mm -hmm. But the doc just like freezes in place. It, it, it makes me think of <laughs> the scene in Emperor's New Groove. Yes. Crunk. <laughs> <laughs> just goes up against the wall. He's like, Because ah. <laughs> he literally just stops mm -hmm. and doesn't move. And then Krug just goes back to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Well, back outside, Mrs. C is in full-on fellatio, but just as that fucker's about to climax, off with his head! This queen of hearts bites that son of a bitch's penis off. It's amazing. It's perfect. It's perfect. And she just walks right over and puts it in the water. Yeah, she goes over and spits it out into the water, rinses off her face, as, as he is left to scream and bleed out. Well, of course, his screams wake up Krug and Sadie, only to find the doc is waiting at the foot of the bed with his shotgun. But Krug takes him by surprise by turning the lights off, and the doc is left to shoot blindly and flee the room. We can hear Krug struggle to get up, and he makes his way out of the room, only to slide on the shaving cream and trip on the wire the doc set up. The two confront each other again in the living room, and Krug sees Mary on the couch. The Doc and Krug start to beat the shit out of each other, and Krug keeps taunting him, saying, You know, your daughter, she's a lot tougher than you, Doc. She took a long time to kill. You're just a pussy. And it's like the fucking gall mm -hmm. of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. You've taken this man's daughter. You've deflowered her. You've humiliated her. You know, you've tortured her. And now you're going to come in here and throw all that shit up in his face? Yeah. What just a giant piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Well, Krug manages to get the upper hand, and it, he's just beating the shit out of the doctor. But lo and behold, here comes Junior. And somehow, he got the pistol that the doc had taken off the nightstand, and he shoots at Krug. But he misses. But it's enough to stop the fight. But Krug now goes and confronts Junior and tells him what a disappointment he is and what a fuck up he is and how he'll never have the balls to shoot him. And he might as well just blow his own fucking brains out. And that's exactly what Junior does. He shoots himself in the head and we watch him slowly sink to the ground and die. And I got to tell you, it took me by surprise. Yeah, me too. I wasn't expecting the scene at all. No, I, it completely came out of left field. I thought for sure, you know, Krug was just going to keep yelling him and eventually, you know, this was going to be 
Junior's redemption. You know, he was born into this life. He didn't ask for it. His father purposely got him hooked on heroin so he could keep him under his thumb. You know, Junior needed that fix to not feel sick. Mm-hmm. And and that wasn't his choice. And, and so you saw this, oh, here's this moment. Junior's going to have his redemption. And it doesn't happen. It's just another way that this movie just defeats you. You know, it's just so upsetting. Yeah, and especially because you really do, I mean, as much as you can begin to kind of sympathize for him, you know, and, and like you said, kind of you you realize, yeah, he wasn't, this wasn't necessarily his decision to make from the get-go. Of course, you know, as he gets older, the decisions are his to make and they're shitty decisions. Mm-hmm. But you do kind of, in the back of your mind, start kind of rooting for him, hoping that he can get to the better side of all this. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't think, and, and this is totally my my bad, I, I've never explicitly said that he did not participate in anything that was going on. Mm-hmm. He was literally always on the side or always just kind of, you know, make sure that person doesn't get away kind of thing. Yeah. But he never participated in any of the violence, any of the rape, none of it. So... If anyone from that group was going to be redeemable, certainly you're rooting for Junior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But before we even have time to really let this death sink in, Krug starts to hear a strange noise and realizes as he was yelling at Junior, he never even noticed that Dr. C snuck back off to the basement to rearm himself. With a motherfucking chainsaw. Oh, shit. (laughs) Here we go. And when that chainsaw rips, just... And you know what's about Mm -hmm. to happen. I imagine that that audience just starts screaming. Yes. This is that moment of joy. You just know they're going to win. As soon as you hear the chainsaw, parents Mm -hmm. are going to win. These people are going to die. Yeah. We get our redemption. Here we go. Mm-hmm. But turns out Krug now has the shotgun and tries to shoot the doc. But luckily, old Dr. C could only find one shell for that gun. And there's no more bullets. <laughs> well, Sadie joins the party and pulls a knife on Krug. She starts yelling, get away from me, get away from me. I, I wasn't sure what the point of that was. I don't know... If that's her saying, get away from me because I'm going to run and get out of this house, you're on your own. Or if that's her trying to convince the doctor, I'm not really with this guy. They're holding me captive too. you got to help me. So I wasn't sure what the motive was there because Krug basically turns around and she runs out the back. So it was just, it was this odd moment. Did you catch it? Yeah, I did. I I didn't quite get the vibe that it was necessarily an act of like trying to play off that they had also kind of held her hostage Mm -hmm. I totally got the vibes that it was totally like self-preservation and was trying to like just get away from she associated the chainsaw she associated the dad and all that craziness with him Mm -hmm. and so I think it was like get away from me so I can escape this situation and try to find a way out and and like you said yeah like you're on your own bye fucker (laughs) yeah yeah Well, like I said, Krug backs off and tries to go out the front door, but he's electrocuted by another one of Doc's traps. 
Sadie runs outside but trips down the stairs and drops her knife. So Mrs. C now comes running back from dining on a little D and jumps on Sadie and we have ourselves a full-on cat fight. Meanwhile, Krug is trying to defend off the doc's advances with the chainsaw, but back in the yard, this cat fight is now some full-on MMA ground and pound. These ladies are going at it, and it's a pretty damn good fight. Mm-hmm. This isn't just hair pulling. This is These ladies are getting on top of each other and pounding the crap out of each other. But Sadie manages to get away and runs off <laughs> across the yard, Straight into a pool she can't see. Now, the reason why this is funny is because it's obvious that this is one of those shots that's done during the day and they've put a filter on it to make it look like it's darker. So we can see just fine. But you are to assume, I guess, that they cannot, that it's the middle of the night, so it's pitch black, and she just couldn't see that there was a pool there. But it just seems absurd. She's just like running, then all of a sudden, ah! (laughs) It's like, how do you not see a giant pool? I know, we kept kind of joking. I was like, oh no, why is this hard ground not hard anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Papa Doc has now advanced on Krug just as the sheriff and Cobra Kai finally arrive at the damn house. But they're too late, and the dock slices Krug right down the middle. While simultaneously, Mrs. C picks up Sadie's knife, runs to the pool, and slashes her throat. Mm-hmm. The couple are reunited and collapse into each other's arms in the living room. Because vengeance is exhausting. It really is. This whole movie is exhausting. I so needed a nap. Last up, Cobra Kai comes over and takes the chainsaw from Dr. C, and roll credits. That's it. Except we have to hear that stupid fucking Krug and Company song. I hate the music in this film. That's it. That's the last time I'm going to say it. And that's it. We did it. It's actually not a very long film, like an hour and 15 minutes, which surprises me. Yeah, I, I thought it would be longer, too. I know that I think I saw somewhere, and I'm assuming this is obviously the uncut version, but I also saw a runtime of an hour and a half. Yeah, I, I would imagine that's the uncut version. Okay. Again, like I said, we saw a uh, just a standard cut version of this. I don't know how much worse the cut version is. I will go ahead and tell you, I do know that, you know, they mentioned in the documentary that parts of the original script can be seen. And by that, they mean you don't see any scenes they shot from the original script, but they show flashes of pages from the actual script. Mm-hmm. And in one of them, there was a reference to them taking a dog's penis and inserting it in a woman's rectum. Oh. And Jeremy Rain talked about how in one scene that she they were actually supposed to remove one of the breasts of one of the girls and Sadie was supposed to consume it. Oh, wow. So, yes, this movie was intended to be way worse mm-hmm. than what we got. So... I'm curious about what is actually in the uncut version, but not so much that I'll probably ever seek it out and watch it. The music could be better. I doubt it. I don't think that changed. There could be another bonus song for you. Well, based on what I already heard, bonus is bad. (laughs) I don't want more of what I already don't like. (laughs) It just, it just... 
messed with my head. That's that's it. Yeah. In any other situation, it would have been perfectly fine. But in this movie, everything was just, it was so one extreme to the other. Yeah. It was just horrible torture and bad images or extreme goofy what is happening. Yeah. And it's just, it's such a swing. But again, I think all of that was absolutely purposeful. Mm -hmm. It's like the entire time you feel off balance. Yeah. It's like watching a racer head. You are supposed to feel uncomfortable and almost not want to look at it. It's almost like you go, I just, if I could just get a break. And, and even in these crazy goofy moments, you can't because you're so uncomfortable because you're not sure how you're supposed to be reacting to these things. I'm almost curious how, how, cause we, Last week we watched Blackula and we watched it on Pluto mm-hmm. and Pluto has commercials. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that Last House on the Left was also on Pluto, but I'm almost curious, like, if would commercials be like unsettling in this movie? Kind of like, you know, they there's like the running joke on true crime podcasts, true crime shows or whatever, when they're telling these like gruesome stories. And then there's the the advertisement. Mm hmm. Uh, and it's always like, okay, this is how do you transition from that? Right. So it, would that it, be it's like? And then she was horribly murdered and stabbed eighty six times. And now a word from Blue Apron. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder, which if we that, are not sponsored by. No. <laughs> uh, so, but I wonder if that would be weird watching that movie with commercials. I almost feel like it would be a relief, kind of like, oh, okay. I can breathe breathe. for a second. Yes. (laughs) Bring me back to reality. Ground Mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. I can see what's going on. I understand the rules in this commercial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't in this movie. And it makes my brain very (laughs) (laughs) wibby-wobby. So much so that I made up a word for it. All right. Well, I mean, we got to wrap this one up. So we got to get to the prompts. But I think you struggled a bit with the prompts this week. Yeah. I, I got through with the movie and it was one of those things where... I don't know. I wasn't unenthused by the movie. I wasn't, you know, disappointed or anything because I I had seen the remake. I knew what this movie was about. And and this is one of those times where and and a lot of this I think has to do with the fact that we saw the version that we did. I don't think that I will ever really seek out the uncut version to prove myself wrong or anything like that. Uh, but to me personally, and this is my personal opinion, I thought that the remake was better, but that was by the end of this movie. So going into it, I had known what the remake was and how I had felt during the remake and everything like that. And so getting into this, I was like, this is just kind of meh for me. So by the end of the movie, when I got to my prompts, I didn't really have a whole lot of material for me to choose from. You know what I mean? I just didn't feel comfortable making decisions just to have something in Mm -hmm. that spot basically Mm -hmm. but I'm still very eager to hear your responses to the prompts and I still really enjoyed the movie like I said I wasn't disappointed or anything like that in watching it and I never am going to be disappointed in the movies that we watched I I love watching movies of any kind and I'll sit down and watch movies of any kind Uh, but yeah this was one of those that by the end of it I was just like I, I just don't feel enthusiastic about putting these prompts in here and I, and I just didn't want to be basically like I said repeating stuff that I didn't feel like passionate about going into sure. those prompts so mm-hmm. uh but but yeah I'm still excited to hear your responses for sure so 
Can we get into yours? Absolutely. So, of course, we have popcorn spiller. So, my popcorn spiller, it's a freaking machete. When it popped mm-hmm, in at the cemetery mm-hmm. with that music, it's the only time in this entire movie that they have anything that comes close to some sort of horror score. Yes. And it's just this one moment of this, yeah, it's a machete. Yes, yes. It, it really did scare the crap out of me. Uh, my scene stealer, it's a toss-up. I, I mean, if I, I, I'm really going to be serious about it, it's Junior. I thought his character was very compelling. I, I would have liked that to be more developed, you know, and, yeah. and get to see more of that character's journey. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought Mark Scheffler, who played him, I thought he was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I really enjoyed him when he was on screen. You know, that's kind of how we judge it. Who do you gravitate mm-hmm. toward? And, mm-hmm. and it was always, it was always him. Yeah. And my other one is Ada. I just adore her. <laughs> <laughs> that scene is so fun with her. It really was. Uh, and of course, my gorgasm is that freaking chisel and hammer. Oh, oh just yes. about ruined me. I was like, oh, just for five minutes afterwards, I could not relax. I was just. I don't think I've ever seen you like physically squirm that much, like out of like disgust. Yeah, yeah. you just were like, oh, I can't relax. No, no it's <laughs> so bad. Well, and that brings us to the memorable mortality, which in this one I have to give it to the chainsaw. And, and the reason why, and it's not the death itself, because it's that's mostly off screen. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, it is. Every bit of it's off screen. You, you see his lifeless body, the legs kind of sticking out at the end. You never actually see any of it. But it's that moment when you hear that chainsaw. That is your audience's victory. And I just can imagine that audience screaming with joy that this is happening Mm -hmm. and you know I talked in the beginning about how by the end of this movie all these roles were going to flip and and that's what's happened is that now our evil our evil family has become the victims and our good family has now turned to violence Mm -hmm. uh, to rid themselves of their threat and it's this perfect climax moment where we finally get to rejoice that uh, our parents have come through and and avenge the death of their daughter and it's a wonderful moment so for me that's my memorable mortality I was I had no idea it was going to happen it certainly is not in the sequel so this was just it it was it was such a fun moment for me It, it was great so ultimate question here it comes here it comes vault or leave it in the dead zone I think for me, I just, I didn't connect with this one that much. It was just so-so. And I, I don't know if that's because of the version that we watched. I don't know. I just, uh, you know, a lot of people hyped up this movie as long as I've heard of this movie. I mean, when I, I remember that when I went to go see the remake, I remember like my parents telling me like oh that's a that's a remake of an older movie and then you know that whole like way it was out whenever we were kids and it was Mm -hmm. pretty intense and so and and the remake does it lives up to that intense reputation so I don't know I I I think it would again depend on the version but because the version that we saw to me I probably wouldn't just because it's not something that I would go back and 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 enjoy to rewatch. I know that it was significant for what it did in in the exploitation scene, and I can definitely give that credit 
where where it deserves to have that credit but for me I just I don't think I would put it in the vault for myself how about for you uh well when I make decisions about whether or not I want to put something in the vault which I think between the two of us there's going to be very few things that we don't put in the vault Mm -hmm. just because you and I just enjoy movies Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. but I always look at it as you know what does this movie mean entertainment wise and what does it mean to the horror genre yeah and I equate this with the exorcist in the sense that it's not a movie that I'm probably ever going to go back and watch again Mm -hmm. because it's uncomfortable but I've seen it I appreciate it for the brilliance of what it was when it was made I recognize it as a classic Mm -hmm. and I think because of that alone and its significance to horror I can't possibly not put it in the vault that makes sense I know this is one of those, it's it's a cult classic. I know that a lot of people were, were excited knowing that we were covering it. And I was excited too to watch it just because I hadn't seen the original. And I am thankful for the fact and enjoyed the fact that I got to see this because I like, especially when I see remakes, I, I hate to be that person that's like, oh, I haven't seen the original, but I really like the remake. Um, so I like the fact that now I have seen the original, just out, so I can have that knowledge of, of of seeing the movie and everything like that. I ju- I don't know. I just didn't connect. It was so. It was. I was almost like sad that I didn't enjoy it more than I did, just because I was expecting to. You know, like because it was so hyped up in my head. So I don't know. I'm I'm torn about it. I I can totally get behind your idea of wanting to put it in the vault for those specific reasons, and completely understand that. Uh, for sure but I, I don't know I just felt disconnected from it and I'm still sad about it <laughs> <laughs> well there's no need to apologize it's your personal opinion some people are going to like this more than others it, it just depends on what you're trying to get out of your horror yeah and and for me as such a just film fanatic mm-hmm. you know I I really look at everything as a whole that's why I get so jazzed about finding all these backstories and Mm -hmm. these facts and stuff because that just enhances my experience and and so knowing all that and what was really going on behind the scenes and how this was supposed to be so much worse than it is I mean who knew this was actually supposed to be a full-on freaking porno yeah that's crazy yeah that is really insane it it just really heightens my appreciation Mm -hmm. so whether or not you know I could call it like a a great horror movie mm-hmm. which I do still think it's a great horror movie mm-hmm. I thought it was brilliantly done it's just not something I'm gonna watch all the time and it all comes down to it's just uncomfortable it's uncomfortable for me to watch I've seen it I appreciate it for what it is I'm good and now I will encourage other people to go watch it mm-hmm. and that's it that's, that's the last that. house on the left that's the last house on the left Well, that's going to do it for us. Episode number 12 is... In the can. In the can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Dead Zone on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and or review. And if you screenshot that review and send it to us, we're going to send you your very own Dead Zone sticker for free. That's no monies, honey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com. And if you're wanting to reach us by snail mail, our address is P.O. Box 12665, 
Oklahoma City, Oklahoma 73157. We'll be sure to pick it up while we're driving through town. Also, be sure to cruise down to our show notes where you'll find a link tree URL to our socials and our Letterboxd, which is a site and app to keep up with all the movies we're watching. And lastly, be sure to seek us out next week as we'll be watching The Toolbox Murders. And if you want to check out its trailer, don't worry, we got you. It's also linked down in the show notes. And of course, a big thank you to our house band Slime and the Maggot Boob for inviting us to the launch party of their new album, Dapper Dogs of Haskell County. I hear if you sync it up to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, it sounds like shit. It wasn't good. Don't do it. It's terrible. Yeah, it made my ears bleed. And remember, if you're looking for the dead zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. There's forks wrapped with wire and water... What? Water window latches? Why would I write that? (laughs) I think I wrote something wrong. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Five, zero, five.